Hi there, I'm Karen Dunn of KMD Productions. From the equipment manufacturers to the engineers to the business people behind the scenes. Over the years, every member of the Pro Audio Corner of the music industry have become family to me. And it's my job to bring the whole eclectic crew together. Each episode, I'll introduce you to one of these characters and open a window into my world of creating community in Pro Audio. Thanks for tuning in to One and Done. Today, I'm talking to Joe Lamont, the president and CEO of NAM. First, I want to start and talk about your motorcycle habit. Hmm. How'd you get into motorcycles? And what do you have? Yeah, you could say I've been a lifelong motorcyclist. I had, you know, we rode mini bikes growing up. And when I was 17 in high school, I bought my first official motorcycle, a Yamaha 250 Enduro. Three weeks later, I promptly got hit by a 78-year-old lady named Lillian Radzwan while leaving a party and going to my bartending job when I was a senior in high school. Because in New York, you know, you could legally work in bars at 18, which is what I did. So, and then there's a little bit of a gap between that and then the, you know, usual age of a midlife crisis, I think, is somewhere in the mid to late 40s. Uh-huh. And so that's when I revisited that, uh, my lifelong love of motorcycles. <laughs> I'm not sure what happened in the years in between, but um, yeah, no, I, I got back, back into it in my, you know, my 40s. So, What do you have now? And do you just have one? Ivana's got like five or something. Well, I mean, you know, and, and why though is the question, right? What does a motorcycle represent? What does a drum set represent? You know, in many ways, the things we either are drawn to represent something to us, right? Or, right. And to me, the motorcycle or music in that sense represented freedom. Okay freedom. You could fly. You can, by playing drums, I had the same feeling, riding motorcycles the same way. It's freedom. And so, you know, in the way that that's um, how I, what I, what I use it for in a sense, it's a, it's a way to, you know, break away from all this and do something where a total concentration, just like music, Mm -hmm. um, you might die. Uh, sort of like, like music. Sort of like music. <laughs> I mean, you know, I've seen Spinal Tap enough to know that as a drummer, I have a higher than normal chance of spontaneously combusting. <laughs> right? It could happen. It's, it could happen. The chances are not zero. So, uh, so <laughs> it could die. And also that it's just, um, in some ways, it's just, it's your own thing. You're out there. So, yeah, it represents something to me. It's a lot of fun. Um, I have more than one, I think is the best way to put it. Um, probably I have more than, I should, and probably more than my wife knows about. So let's just leave it at that. What's your favorite one? The one I'm riding at the moment. Okay. Is it I like children? I literally say that. I literally say that. As I've already, oh, this is my favorite one. And then I'll get another, no, this is my favorite one. And then I'll ride it. Like, no, this is definitely the favorite <laughs> one. <laughs> and I'm sure that's true of musicians. This guitar, no, right. this is the one. And then you pick up, oh, this is the one. So, yeah. Being on a motorcycle is kind of like swimming. Like if you're swimming on a team, you're it's an individual sport, but you're with a group. Yeah. Is that what you found with motorcycle riding? Or are no, you more just solitary? I ride alone. I totally okay. ride alone. Yeah. No, I don't do group rides. I've ridden across the country many times all by myself. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is I just like to be on my own schedule because everything mm-hmm. else in life, especially in my role here, is scheduled to the second sometimes. Yeah. Just to the minute, you know? And that's one of the very few times you can actually just Am I going to do 400 miles today or am I going to do 600 miles today? It depends, whatever I want. But two, what I've noticed is if you're traveling and you're alone, people will come up and talk to you. 
in a diner, in a gas station. If you're two or more, they won't. So I have learned more and had more fantastic interactions with people because they just, hey, nice, but you know, but I guess if you're two or more, they feel intimidated or something, but mm -hmm. people come up to me in the strangest places and just start up a conversation. I've been uh, recruited to convert to new religions. Um, it's just, you know, you name it. And I've had those kind of conversations, you know, across the country and they're wonderful. I've learned a lot. You come back feeling you got a better sense of where the country's at, right? for better or worse. Um, but you certainly uh, get off of the news cycle and the bubble and the media narrowness that isn't really sometimes reflecting what's happening out there really in people's lives. So. Right. Yeah. When I travel, when I travel for work, I travel by myself and I will eat at bars Yeah. and I'll go sit at the bar because then I'm, I don't feel so just by myself. And people will always talk to me. If I go to a bar with someone else and we sit at the same place, then no one will talk. But yeah. I have met so many people and talked about things and heard about things that if I didn't travel by myself, I would never know. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing and it's wonderful and it's kind of scary sometimes. I think the person that captured that the most eloquently was Neil Peart in his books about motorcycle travel. And uh -huh. again, he was a celebrity. So he had the, you know, the added burden of being recognized sometimes. But, you know, that in most cases, he had just the most natural one-on-one -on -one conversations with no one knowing who he was and therefore not, you know, having that starstruck or, you know, um, other filter that might have been on had he uh, been coming off stage or something. So, right. you know, it's just, again, you know, we talk about music, we talk about our ecosystem, our, our, our industry, and it really is just a bunch of people, a bunch right. of people who have a similar passion, um, but it always comes down to the people. And so whether you know, whatever we do in life, I think that's the most important thing to me, especially and probably to an industry is, you know, do you have a whole bunch of great people around you? Do you have the opportunity to interact and learn from a bunch of great people? And so they say, whether it's happening in a gas station in rural Alabama, when I met someone that taught me something I didn't know, or is it, you know, at an AM show where you're surrounded by the global industry, you're always open to learn, always looking right. for some new insight, right? We're all on a journey here, so. Right. I wasn't going to talk about this now, but it seems like the perfect place to segue into it. So let's talk about community. Since I've been working with Nam, well, first, before all that, I should, I was told I have to say that your daughter, Stephanie Lamont, is the producer of this podcast. I'm trying to be totally transparent. And that also means I know everything about you, but we won't go into all details. Back to this. Since I've known you, um, you've always talked about being very inclusive with NAM, and you've been working on bringing the pro audio community in and everything at Tech Awards, all that seems so central to community and building community, expanding community. Can you tell me what community means to you? You know, Karen, I don't actually think about it in that way. I, 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 that's almost the more technical way to approach it. All I know is that there's a lot of different people involved in making this musical ecosystem that we love. And they all are important and they all are valued and they should all be together in the same place. So I guess that the result of that is community. But to mm -hmm. me, it's, it's more, you know, kind of simple than that is, you know, whether you're a musician or you work in a studio or you're one of the crew on the tour 
or whether you are someone you know that invented that n- instrument, or whether the person that brought it to market, or the person that taught that instrument to a young person. You know, you pull one of those elements out of the out of the equation, and you no longer have music. So I think that's how I looked at it. Is every one of those segments, you know, had a essential role. Now add even another element to it, which is globally, you know. Uh, our members in Japan, our members in Russia, our members in South Africa, our members in, you know, you name it around the world. We speak different languages. We have different customs. We have different histories completely, but the music is the one thing that is the glue. So I guess maybe glue is the word I would use for community that without all that, you don't have the, you don't have the ingredients to make what I think is, uh, the, the, what we bring to the world, which is music. So it's almost like we needed them. Like you've heard forming a band, right? Yeah, we need this, we need that, we need that. Well, we need all those elements to make this work. And now bringing them all together at the NAMM show, first of all, there's the reason to do it that's, you know, I guess in full disclosure, <laughs> we do it for us. It's smart business. You bring right. all the people together, you can create a really good event that is valuable. And the NAM as a nonprofit can, you know, produce, raise some money, and then the rest of the year go do all these wonderful things for our vision, which is supporting music education, supporting, you know, young up and coming people in the industry and basically fulfilling our vision of a more musical world. So it's good business. Start with that. But on top of that, you are creating this kind of future put in um, music educator with a product designer from a major manufacturer. They're going to talk. Or you take someone who's in the theater program and you put them with a lighting engineer from one of the great lighting companies. They're going to talk. They're going to share ideas about what is the pain points, what is needed in the marketplace, what is not there yet. And out of that is going to come a new product idea. And out of that is going to come a new service. Or, you know, those two people might not have ever come in contact with each other. So right. you just multiply that over every segment of the industry, over throwing an artist in there, throwing, you know, a, a music teacher in there, throwing in each manufacturer, looking at what the others are doing. Hmm, what's they got over there? That's pretty cool. Let's see how that's going to affect our new product, you know, kind of like totally benchmarking themselves against everyone else. There's no place you can else do that except the NAMM show. All that combined is like lighting a big old, you know, flare and rocketing this thing forward exponential, you know. And so it's good for it's good for the long term too. It's good for business. It's also good for, I think, music because it creates this, like I said, it's a rocket multiplier that throws this thing into the into the atmosphere each year. Each and every year, you got to do that. Yeah. Uh, so that's what it is. I guess out of that comes a sense of community, but it's Cheers Bar. That's all it is. Right. The show is supposed to be his Cheers Bar. And for your younger listeners who might be around the age of Stephanie's age, who have no idea what Cheers Bar is, <laughs> a great TV show based on community where... <laughs> Everybody hung out and everybody knew your name. And the theme song was Cheers, where everybody knows your name. And so that was had been my vision for the NAMM show since the first day, which was make everybody feel when they walked onto that campus that you were walking into Cheers Bar. Everyone was glad you were there and waved as you walked in the door. That's it. You do that. The rest kind of just, the rest takes care of itself. We were talking a little earlier before I started recording about how Earlier in NAMM's history, it was there were clear paths about who who could get in. There they had clear roles, and it was an easy thing. Now with everything together, 
and that so much overlap. You've been at NAM. You've been the CEO and president since 2001, right? Yeah. This Sunday is my 20th anniversary. Okay. So it's a long time. Yeah. So how did you go from what you came into to the vision that you have now? Yeah. You know, this really, this vision isn't really any different than I had at Skip's Music in Sacramento. You know, we always had that same goal of how can we serve our customers? You know, we did that in retail, except you do it every day as they walk in the front door then. It's a, it's an immediacy that's maybe a little different than in a global trade association. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, you know, we had programs to create more music makers. That attracted NAM. I got to work with NAM on a project called Weekend Warriors that we had developed in Sacramento. Next thing you know, I'm working at NAM <laughs> because my predecessor went to work for VH1 Save the Music. Two and a half years later, next thing you know, I'm in this role. It's all kind of accidental in a sense, but it was driven by, first of all, I always felt like we were sort of the uh, up and coming kids, right? We were the kids in the room. Uh And as long as we kept doing things that were, you know, not going to burn the house down, the adults would let us keep playing. Uh Honestly, still feel that way. It's like, you know, you look around and go, one of the adults coming back, you know, (laughs) we still have to keep doing these things. So, but it speaks to the idea of we've got to try new things all the time. That's what, when you don't know any better, that's what you do. You try different things. And NAM's been always doing that since 1901, right? I mean, you know, think about how many changes. The early NAM members, retail members, you know, they didn't deliver products, you know, in overnight FedEx. A lot of pianos were delivered on horse-drawn wagons when NAM first started, you know? Yeah. Hey, I'd like to order this piano. Okay, we'll have it there, you know, next Tuesday at three. Well, how will I know you're coming? You'll hear the horse. <laughs> you know. So, I mean, you know, you'd find any time in NAMM's history where there wasn't a lot of rapid change. And it's just been a constant. And, you know, we lament the old days when everything was better and everything was sunnier. And it's like, no, there's nothing but change. So to your question specifically, I think one of the major impacts of the internet and the globalization of the industry has been the blurring of the lines between who does what. Blurring of the lines. And, you know, we noticed it in many ways, but including where we saw, and and maybe my own career was a part of this, someone might work in a music store. And that Mm -hmm. may be, I guess, their primary job. Wait a minute, they teach guitar in the evenings and the weekends. So are they a teacher? No, they work in retail. Oh, but they're a player. And they also play in bands and maybe actually go on tour once in a while. Okay, are they a retailer? Are they a teacher? Are they a musician? But wait a minute, they actually do production on the side. And, you know, if they get a call from Todd Rungren, they're going to go off and do a tour as a production manager. Oh, hold on a second. Are they a retailer? Are they a teacher? Are they a player? Or are they a production manager? Oh, wait a minute. You know, the list goes on and you realize that's a lot of us. Right. It's a lot of people that are listening right now. You know, what do you say you do most? Well, depends on what month it is, maybe. Depends on you know, what season it is. And so, and by the way, that's a strength. Diversity is an absolute strength. That's, right. you know, that was the samurai code, be knowledgeable in many occupations, you know? And so I think that's, that's actually a really positive thing for the industry. But it's terrible if you have this registration system that says, are you a manufacturer? Are you a distributor? Or are you a retailer? And then your, you know, your members and customers are sitting there looking at, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I do you know, and then you've got, you know, the distribution changes. There's a lot of manufacturers who are, you know, maybe reaching customers directly now. We've got a lot of right. retailers who have, you know, become, you know, in, in the sourcing world and brought in private labels. So are they a manufacturer? Are they a retailer? So our reflection of that was if you make music and sound equipment 
as your primary income. If you sell music and sound equipment as your primary living, or if you use music and sound equipment in your primary living, you're in this tribe. You're vital, you're a part of it. So we had to reflect that. And that's, if you've seen Crossroads, which is our, we needed a word. It was a crossroads, you know, we were at a crossroads in 07 or 08, around the recession time. Mm -hmm. We felt the industry was at a crossroads. We wanted to be the crossroads, you know, where everybody globally met. Um, And it's just a great, it's a great song. So all those things made it a great metaphor for what we were trying to accomplish. But that was what some of the, you've seen lately when you, when you started coming in with tech awards and, and the other things we've added, it was more of a reflection of the crossroads, which was uh, we needed to do a better job as an organization of welcoming all these parts and then do that globally to make sure that as an as a industry, all of us could move forward and, and grow and prosper. I mean, you know, the 2020 NAM show was the largest NAM show in history on every measure. And then the pandemic hit, but let's not talk about that. But <laughs> But the, the reflection of that is that means we had the strongest industry in the history of humankind in 2020. Pretty in amazing. Beginning of 2020. Yeah. You know, I mean, there has never been a, as robust of a global music products industry and sound industry as there has been as we went into 2020. So now we got to get back. We got to build that back. We've got to re, um, you know, commit to building that. But, you know, I guess I take that as a sign that it was working. Right. By bringing everyone together, we were actually accomplishing, you know, this kind of vision of bringing everybody forward as a, as a group, everybody thriving, you know, the marketplace is the marketplace and there's always going to be that competition. But as a overarching industry and vision, we were, we were succeeding and thriving. And, you know, I always said that given where the world was heading, we needed, the world needed what we brought Mm -hmm. to the table more than ever. So I was, I, I, you know, the crossroads plan to me was right. It was correct. When you brought in tech, what were you hoping to accomplish by bringing that to NAM? Each of these segments, whether it was industry segment like lighting or audio or school band and orchestra or combo, you know, how we have these little segments that are our words for the segments, our descriptions. We felt that if we did a couple of things for them, they would they would come to our event. One was have a robust trade show floor um, of all the products they wanted to see. Two, an educational track that would help them all grow and be more successful in their own lives. It's all about, every one of us is all about us, right? You know, we wanted to have an education track that would help each individual be more successful, however they chose. And then the third thing we needed, we felt to attract them to our events, to shows, were some sort of social networking and or event that drew them to the social side, the community side. And so we looked at each segment and said, do we have a robust trade show for, for them? Do we have a robust educational track for them? And do we have a gathering spot? Do we have a, a, a you know, town square for them to gather in? And we started looking at each of those segments. By the way, I'm actually just laying out our whole competitive strategy. <laughs> um, but so for that segment, you know, Tech Awards was the town square for that group. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that's why bringing it into NAM show was, you know, was completing that. Yeah. We had, to, we had the great exhibitors for those people. We had, we had, we created great education with tech tracks. First, um, the hot zone. Remember it was right. You know, the hot that's zone right. Before yeah. it was tech tracks. And, but we needed the town square. 
And the Tech Awards became our town square for that. That's why. And, and, and by the way, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat on every other segment. And so if you go over to, I'm not even sure what, hip, what hotel it is now, on one of the, I think it's Thursday nights, you'll see a group called the Piano Travelers. These were a very specific group of the industry that would literally be the road salesman for pianos back in the day. They still meet. Wow. All these years later, and they have their town square at the NAMM show. Um, so yeah, at some point, you know, as things change and the industry continues to evolve, I mean, there'll be at some hotel in 50 years from now, the tech awards. <laughs> and people will say, oh, those guys still doing that? <laughs> because there'll be some whole new fancy, shiny thing that, right. uh, that everyone moved over here. Who knows how musical we made in 50 years? Yeah. But, um, but yeah, that was the point. Um, and by the way, you know, I looked at the... Uh, who would put it together? Probably Halal. They put some video together. I mean, you probably did. Of uh, some of the early tech highlights, tech award highlights, and I remember seeing that online and going, "Oh, we gotta get that. Ooh, we gotta get that at the Nam Show because it was just so cool. Yeah, what you had created, you know, it was just so magical in my mind. And we, so we, you know, we actually just invited the tech awards to just use the Nam platform." And so for the first couple of tech awards at NAM, you know, it was still being done by the original founders, David and Hillel and you and your team. And at some point we just said, look, this is actually kind of a marriage. We should just get married. <laughs> and it was probably two or three years in, but I remember at first it was literally here, here's the room. Right. Bill for the labor and all that the first couple of years. But we realized soon after that, no, this is, this is part of our, this really fits well. And so we actually made it permanent. So. It's hard to explain to people who haven't been to the Tech Awards what it is and how magical it is. Because, you know, we, we've tried to get celebrities and they go, there's no press there. There's no, it's like, no, but you just got to get in that room. And when they get in the room and see who's there and that whole feel. But the head was there. Hal was there. I mean, yeah. Uh, I, yeah. They were there. Yeah. Yep. That's it. That was the magic. You know, um, yeah. there, there'll be highlights. Yeah. Some of the music was fantastic. You know, I mean, Honoring Joni Mitchell was, you know, you know, where do you go from there in a sense, just as far as the feeling of, of just, you know, royalty. But everyone in my mind, the, the industry people in that room are the true royalty. Right. I right? agree. And yeah. so the highlights for me at Tech Awards are seeing the artists tearing up or being just so respectful and thanking the audience for making the gear that allowed them to get, you know, Pete Townsend saying, you allowed me to get what was up here on to tape. And so, the, yeah, I guess the world liked it, but he was basically saying, I couldn't have done it without right. what you invented. So that to me is, that, that's kind of the, the end zone there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, some of those clips, you should definitely throw the link up on this one for the 35-year collection we put together. It's a, I don't know, 10-minute video, maybe I don't know, plus or minus, but it's hilarious. Great. It just, it captures a sense, not a whole thing, but just a little tiny peek into what the tech awards are like. I mean, Father Guido Sarducci. I don't think I would live my life over, but I sure wish I could remix it, you know? <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, I don't think I would change my life, but I would like to remix it. I mean, just, you know, there's just, those moments are classic. Yeah. So anyway, that's what the tech awards is. And um, it needs to continue to grow and evolve like everything else. Yeah. Change is good. Um, I don't change think anyone in our industry would still want to be, you know, recording on the 60s technology or yeah. 
no, change, we have to keep pushing forward, but you do it by remembering also and honoring the people that got you there. What program that you've started or were instrumental in getting going for NAM are you most proud of? Do you have one? Sesame Street. Wanted to talk a little bit Sesame about Sesame Street Music Works. It was when I was back in market development and we had a growing body of research, music brain research, linking uh, early music participation with incredible brain development in young people. I mean, like prior to them ever getting into a fourth grade band or orchestra class, which is generally when students are exposed into a traditional music program. And the research was pointing to the development that was occurring much, much earlier than that. And in a sense, we were missing that. And uh, it was when I was first coming to NAM. Stephanie and Willie were babies. Stephanie was a toddler. And at some point, we were watching a Sesame Street show with Elmo and all that. And, and, and I must have been talking to my wife about, you know, this research and how it's really from three to four to five. There's this like, really, how do we get the word out to parents, you know? about um, the value of this research so that they should get their kids into music earlier than they would have And I, I remember it differently. Who knows, Stephanie may remember it differently, but I thought Stephanie said something like, she pointed to the TV and said Sesame Street, basically saying, that's how you reach those people, Dad. That's what we're watching. We're watching Sesame Street at age three or four or five. And um, so I literally went to New York and cold called Sesame Street. I had, had met, I had met Bob McGrath at a lobbying event in D.C., and he wrote a name on a piece of paper for me to ask for, and I cold called him. I just walked in the door and said, hey, I'm from NAM. Um, you know, I'd love to talk to someone about development and we, you know, of, of new programming, and I think we have some great research for you. And it probably took three or four trips to New York to get into, you know, not to get escorted out of the lobby, like, who is this <laughs> guy, you know? But out of that became a multi-million dollar program within Sesame Street called Sesame Street Music Works. And it was a training module for preschools all over the country. Yeah. It was an actual program with Elmo as the star. It, uh, we went to doctor's offices with these flyers about get your kids into music and into, you know, the, 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 where parents were taking their kids to the doctors and everything. And I, I thought that was, you know, something we could, as an industry, we could really be proud of that we might have turned it whole generation of young people on to music earlier than they would have ever traditionally. And, and because of that, it benefited from the brain development that occurs, you know, when they start playing music earlier. Now mm -hmm. the studies we've got totally document that. Second, uh, English learners as a second language are completely better prepared if they have music programs going into kindergarten, first grade. I mean, so many different studies now about how important that was. You know, business is business. I love all that, but that was really special. And then ultimately testifying on Capitol Hill with Elmo for music education funding. Uh -huh. You know, it's just, that to me will be probably one of the highlights. You know, when I leave this job and I leave them, that will probably be one of the things I'm most proud of is that we, um, we might've affected, you know, a lot, a lot of young people and, um, and improve their lives. Stephanie's fault. Story. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I give Stephanie credit for it. Like I say, how do you, how do you say a three or four year old, you know, said, had the wisdom to say, Dad, if you're looking for a true marketing campaign that would reach the demographic <laughs> that you're shooting for, I would really shoot for Sesame Street because their, you know, their ratings are high. No, it was almost like she pointed, and I maybe I just remembered it wrong, but it was like, ah, light bulb, Sesame Street. Who reaches? I think at the time it was 10 million households a, a week or something. It was some astronomical number. This is all pre-cable or maybe cable, mm -hmm. but pre-internet and all that. Um, 
So this, that was a delivery system. And they were great to work with, by the way. They're, and they still are fantastic people, wonderful people. So well, let's switch a little and let's talk about your career path. I don't think there is a traditional career path into any of this, but yeah. I can't imagine as a kid, you were thinking, oh, I want to be the CEO of NAM." Yeah. Uh, so how did you get into it? It speaks to Crossroads completely. You know, um, wanted to be a drummer, moved to California to join a band and to try and make my, you know, fame and fortune. Was um, your family into music at all? But yeah, very musical family. You okay. know, I mean, it was always piano in the house, always lessons. It was encouraged for sure. It was a part of the, it was part of the deal. You know, you had to get good grades and you played music. And so all my siblings play, which was, you know, it was, it was nice. I mean, it was very, very traditional. But this is South Buffalo, south of Buffalo where I grew up. And I you know, loved California, had visited once and I moved out here. But anyway, trying to be a drummer, playing in every possible band you could play in from, you know, the original writing songs to, I, I think, Tuesday nights, I was at Zorba the Greeks playing in a, a Greek band where I had to accent when the owner picked up the table <laughs> with his teeth and threw a glass of ouzo in the wall or something, you know, playing every gig I could possibly get and then worked in music stores because I had to pay the rent. And right. so worked in music stores, started going to NAMM shows in 1983. Yeah, can you imagine this little kid, 21-year-old walking to the NAMM show in 83 going, yeah, someday. <laughs> no. no, I was going to be one of the endorsees walking into that show someday because I was going to be a famous drummer. But retail, did installations, worked for an install company where I did speakers and churches and sound systems and offices. And then, then played a lot, played with Tommy Two-Tone, played with a bunch of different bands, and then got a call from a friend who whose band got hired by Todd Rundgren to be Todd's band for Nearly Human. And uh, I'd just come off the road with Tommy Two-Tone, where I'd also been doing a lot of the production. He said, hey, you want to just do this, but you can't drum. I guess Mike Grabato said, I, I'm drumming, but you want to be the production manager. And so I went to, you know, I got hired by Todd on, on good recommendation from my friend Mike Grabato and learned production. And that was, again, classic crossroads. We'll go back to work at Skip's Music, go on tour, back at Skip's, and then, you know, work my way up at Skips to executive vice president, thanks to Skip and his mentorship. I had two great mentors then, Todd and Skip. They both taught me about, about life and mistakes and um, learning and, you know. So, and then Skips was my path. I, if, if Nam hadn't called 23 years ago, I'd still be at Skips. I was happy as a clam. We lived mm -hmm. in Northern California. You know how beautiful it is up there. Yeah. We just had a, a beautiful life, you know. Uh, but then, you know, I got the opportunity to basically do what I was doing at Skips, creating programs for new music makers, weekend warriors, and working with all the things we were doing to grow the market in Sacramento. I got to take that and do it globally, first nationally and then ultimately globally. So I couldn't turn that one down, but I was, I'd still be there if they hadn't called because I was happy and doing exactly what I wanted. So this was all a fluke. And I think back to Prosperous, I think a lot of people in our space a lot of this is accidental in a way. You just, you know, you, the door opens and you go through it. Then you hopefully do a good job there. Another door opens and you walk through that one. I don't know how many of any of our, your listeners, your, your network have a very direct linear path. I would bet most of them do not. Yeah. Um, you know, and they just found out that they had a particular skill, particular wiring, and they gravitated to things they were good at. And, you know, and so that's how it happens. But then, and, and I think in an industry-wise, that's what I love about our industry. If you have, you know, the passion and, you know, you, you're, you learn, you can find that there's all kinds of places for you. And it didn't matter who your parents were. 
Right. It didn't matter where you went to college or if you went to college. And it doesn't matter, you know, how, what, what kind of a br- financial break you had coming in. This is open for anybody. It's a true meritocracy, I think, our businesses. And um, maybe one of the last. So that's what I love about it. You can, you can make it what you want. That's what the NAM show is about. You walk into that show floor and you realize there's a job like called a tour accountant. Oh, there's a job that is, you know, in educational software at Hell Leonard. There's a job that you go, God, what a smorgasbord. What do I particularly feel passionate about and have a, have a natural affinity for and skill? Go, you know, and it's all there for people to see and they can find their path just by going to the show. They can find where they were, where they were meant to be, you know. Right. I've done a bunch of programs with students and most of them want to be engineers and producers mm-hmm. and they don't really understand the breadth of opportunities for them. And I, I work with PAMA and, and they're going to schools and talking about all the opportunities in manufacturing. Just because you are studying an engineer doesn't mean you have to play music You could or you know, work with music. They want engineers to work with manufacturers because they want that, that skill set. What would you tell students or recent graduates? You know, what should they do? How do they get to the industry? What should they be looking for? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we got three or four, almost 4,000 students who are music or music business majors that come to the 2020 NAMM show. And they have their own day and of education, and then they just fan out. You're looking for their thing. So, I mean, there's there's no better place to see the whole world's ecosystem than there. But I mean, you know, you mentor a lot of people. You know, we've been lucky enough to mentor. We have a whole NAM YP Young Professional Mentorship Program at NAM, and um, it's it's as complicated as you want to make it, or it can be as simple as you want to make it. And I'll tell you the simple version. Okay. okay? And again, not to embarrass Stephanie, but I keep using her <laughs> as an example, you know, because, and we mentor a lot of people around the country too, right? And so depending on where you are, so I, I, I use Stephanie as an example. She did three things to get to where she is now, working at the Recording Academy. Three simple things. One, after, you know, leaving the house, she moved to a place where what she wanted to achieve could happen. She moved to San Francisco. You know, it wasn't going to happen in Vista, California, probably. So the first thing she did was that you have to have the courage to move to where you think what you want to do could happen. That takes a lot of courage. Second thing she did was take whatever job that she could get to be able to stay there. So she worked as a receptionist in a tech company, I think, you know, probably didn't like it at all, but maybe, but it certainly wasn't what she was gunning for. Right. And then having done one and two, she started networking in to the community. She volunteered, started teaching at Blue Bear um, after work, volunteered piano, teaching piano for free. And because of that, met a bunch of people, started networking. You probably, she probably connected with, you know, you or women in audio. There's some San Francisco-based, you know, networking opportunities, especially for young women. And out of that came her job at Blue Bear as a director for Little Bears. Out of that came where she is now. Out of that came recording at Hyde Street Studios, interning at Hyde Street Studios, you know. But those three things, one, move to where it can happen. Two, do whatever it takes to stay there. And three, just get out and start volunteering, networking, and meeting people and taking the doors as they open and have the courage to take those doors. That's good advice for any young person, I think. And regardless of you, whether you want to be in the studio or a producer or design the next piece of great gear or 
God love them. You know, I never want to discourage people from their dreams of being a, a musician. The NAMM show floor is full of people who are still really active musicians, really active and really good players. You never want to give that up. You never, you know, discourage that at all. But you got to think about it in very practical terms. Move to where it can happen. Do whatever it takes to stay there. And then just start networking as much as you can and volunteering and adding value. And you'll see the doors start opening up. Okay. Good advice. You guys had a very successful virtual NAM this year. You had people from... First one. I mean, you know... I thought it went well. Yeah, I mean, it didn't crash. (laughs) It did crash. You had people from all these different countries. 188 countries. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. This year, well, 2022, my prediction is you guys are probably going to be the first major trade show back. And I think it's going to be nuts. I think everybody wants to go. I keep hearing people say, I used to be so sick of NAM. I can't wait to go. It's like everybody wants to go. What did you learn doing virtually that you will bring over in your in-person event? Is there anything? Yeah, no, I think yeah, you hit on the first one, which is deeper reach. Yeah, we picked up 50 different countries that wouldn't, that had not traditionally come to an AM show. Now, obviously, there's a lot of smaller countries, but they're as vital as anything when it comes to music, I think. That's our diversity, our strength. Right. So we want to be able to increase our reach geographically around the world. One. Two, we went deeper into the companies um, beyond those who normally went to the show. So because of the programming, the education, some of the access to new products, company may bring X number of people to the show to work it or to be there. But they may have, you know, 10x back at, you know, back at the home ranch. Right. And so they were all able to participate. So we want to be able to go deeper into the companies. Second. And I think the third thing was we really felt that the idea of having these tools, right? The way the app worked, and maybe that's the way we're all getting programmed in our brains. I had multiple screens open the whole time, as I'm sure a lot of people did, you know, Mm -hmm. four or five sometimes between live streams, educational sessions, and some of the stuff we were doing even with Herb and I. And I think those who are at the show who use this tool, I really think they'll be like twins or triplets in their own effectiveness. They can be two places or three places at once. They'll be way more efficient at um, using their time for education while they're in between meetings or going to meetings. They don't have Mm -hmm. to be up at a tech tracks, they can actually be watching it while they're on their way to the next meeting. They can be networking because of the connecting and the social aspect of it. They can see if a friend, while they're in Hall A, they'll be able to see if a friend is in Hall E, ping them, hey, let's get together in you know, the front of Hall C so we can have five minutes ago. You're literally connected to this brain that's everybody's that's there. So, so I think we want to go, to, to recap, around the world, we want to go much you know, more broadly ge- geographically. Two, we want to go deeper into each company so that they have the benefits more than they would have just for those who come to the show. And three, we want to make the people who are there become twice as effective or three times as effective with the time they're there. That makes sense? It makes that, a lot of sense. Sort of what we learn. And, you know, there's a lot of bugs to work out still. And, but I was really, that, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. And, yeah. you know, I saw more than I might not normally seen. Um, got to hang out with her for, you know, three days. <laughs> That's an experience right there. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, you know, in between takes, we'd be sitting there just like laughing and, you know, oh, I mean, it's just, there was a lot of community built and that might've been the toughest thing to build on a virtual platform. Right. Global live stream, music, you know, artists handing off a song 
to another artist in a different country live and saying, hey, you know, we're leaving Thailand. We're going to hand it over to our friends in Tokyo. Go. And them going, thanks. You know, that's incredible stuff. And, yeah. and then the variety of music that was kind of played. Now, I mean, really, that what that did was bring us all back to the, the kind of, you know, mother root. Why are we doing this again? Oh, yeah. It's music. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, the virtual global live stream in particular really helped us kind of ground and anchor ourselves. So anyway, that was fun. Okay, last question. I understand you're all about setting goals. And like, yeah, got to have end zones. Yeah, so I'm, I'm huge in goal setting. Huge. I want to know what goals you have set for the rest of this year or what goals you have for NAM for 2022. Great question. I mean, the work we do in music advocacy right now, I got language on some of the federal education language that's coming down with billions of tens of billions of dollars are now going to be spent to get kids back in the classrooms this fall. And right now we're making sure that our industry realizes that how much of that is going to go towards musical instruments, supportive music programs, new theater programs, new complete equipment setups, sound and lights. Um, we really, as one of my goals is to make sure our industry doesn't miss a, a minute of this opportunity because they'll never see it again. We will never see this kind of investment again into what we really care about, which is music education. So, you know, literally working on that at nine o'clock last night as this language is coming out, specifically calling for this money to be used because of this, you know, social emotional learning that the, you know, being isolated has created this real epidemic of young people. They're calling out music, art, theater as the place where we're going to be part of the solution with so, you know, emotional, social learning, social, emotional learning. So that's a real huge deal that we don't miss that opportunity. We got to get 22 show back on, back on the rails. I mean, we don't, if yeah. we don't get to do all that stuff, there are no government relations. There are no grants and scholarships in the NAM Foundation. There is no training professional development with NAM University. <laughs> there are no tech awards or tech tracks. You know, that show is the engine that drives all of that. You know, as my, uh, one of my mentors, Carl Bruin used to say, Joe, there are no poor philanthropists. <laughs> we have to do a good job with the 22 show if we're going to be able to continue all these activities to create a robust industry that we've all, you know, really uh, loved seeing. So, yeah, nothing in my goals can really fully be accomplished unless we have a successful 22 show. You know, I mean, the team here has been fantastic. We've been so lucky. We kept everybody through the pandemic. Um, we've maintained our full operating capacity and the team is just chomping at the bit to get back to producing these shows. So um, we're ready. We're going to do it. We've got a period of the industry right now that I've never lived through, which is more demand than supply. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for most of our industry, there's more demand from consumer than there is supply in the chain, in, in, the, in the supply chain. So the 22 show is going to be a big part of that. We need to refill that and, and level that up. And then I think if, if there's a final goal, it's to get back to live music. It's to get live events functioning fully and safely again in whatever role we all may play in that to make sure. Zoom concerts from someone's kitchen were fantastic. I've loved every Meryl Anderson all-star guitar night that she did virtually. Um, I've loved all of your podcasts and all that. And we got to get back to live. We got to get back to in-person live events live concerts, live festivals, and live concerts and conventions and trade shows. So 
it's getting back live and, and how uh, excited we'll be to see each other again. That's, that's yeah. a goal. It's a good one. Yeah. Any personal goals you want to reveal? No. I'm working <laughs> on something, but I'm not going to tell anybody until I actually see if it actually, if I stick with it. <laughs> okay, fine. You never want, you never want to get out, get out over your skis and then someone says, yeah, how's that coming? You said you were, yeah, I kind of <laughs> dropped it. <laughs> hey, I thought I would try. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of One and Done. Don't forget to check out today's show notes and our YouTube channel for more from our guests. And subscribe to our KMD Pro weekly resource guide on kmdpro.com. This podcast is produced by Jules Everson and Stephanie LeBond. Our audio engineer is Corey Klotz. We'll see you next time.